You're listening to 3CR Radio. We do have Dr. Noah Reisman, a historian on the line. Noah, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for the invitation. Always a pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're the author of a new paper called A History of Transgender Women in Sport in Australia uh, from 1976 to 2017. Uh, Let's begin with 1976. What happened then? Why is that the start of your research? Well, first, this paper is part of the broader project I've been doing the last few years on trans history that I've, you know, been talking to your show a bit about. And it grew out of uh, some of what I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, some of the interviews I did with some former and current sports people who are transgender. But to go to your your question about 76, I think 76 is, it's not just Australia, but globally, that's this big moment in trans sport history, but also trans history in general, because that's the year of Renee Richards. And Renee Richards was a professional tennis player from the United States who was outed by a a newspaper in California. um, And then, you know, she was, then became public about being transgender. And there was all sorts of, you know, there was a lawsuit when they tried to stop her from being allowed to play in women's tennis, and she actually won that lawsuit um, and was allowed to continue in the WTA. So that's this sort of global moment um, where you have this really visible, all of a sudden, like, whoa, trans woman playing tennis. And, and, it, and it really, that moment has resonance in Australia because, you know, then there's these questions in Australia, like, oh, well, can Renee Richards play in Australia? And very early on, the Australasian, oh God, I'm probably going to get the title wrong, the, the women's Lawn Tennis Association of Australasia said, no, she would not be allowed to play here. You had Margaret Court um, coming out back then and saying she wouldn't play against Renee Richards even in an exhibition match. And I should say, she very much much misgendered Renee Richards, always referred to Renee um, with male pronouns. Um, but then also the, the media, you know, they find they find this case of Lee Varis, who's a sportswoman out in the Pilbara, and there's a cover story about her in Truth, that, that lovely old tabloid. But it's actually a surprisingly supportive, affirming article. It had a really um, shocking, mocking headline, which was really not uncommon back then. But they obviously interviewed Lee, and there was actually quite a bit of respect in how they reported on this lovely, nice, respectable trans woman who had found a place in this Pilbara community and had been invited and playing on the basketball team and a few other sports, and they all accepted her as a female. And so that's sort of the the reason why 76 is this, is this moment. There's Renee Richards, and then it's like, oh, let's see if we can find some other sports people and write about them in the media. Tell us about the fair play discourse that your paper explores. So this is something that other scholars have written more more detail about, people who've looked more broadly at um, the, the sort of theories around trans women in sport. And, and well, I should say trans people, but usually it's almost always about trans women. Um, trans men often not incorporated in this and non-binary people as well. Um, it's this notion that, you know, whenever the, the debates come up about trans women in sport, it always comes to what's called fair play discourse, this notion that it's not fair. It's, it's, they have an unfair advantage um, because of you know, X, Y, Z, biology, this, that, the other, the argument. And this is the, the constant debate that we hear now. But one thing that my article and my research has shown is that's the same bloody argument that's been happening since 1976 with Renee Richards. And it's interesting is that it's one of the things that came out of Richards was that was sort of the way that Renee Richards was looked at, there were two big things that came out. One was the fair play discourse. Is it fair? And the other one was this sort of 
authenticity, is she really a woman? And every time you have a case of trans women in sport popping up in the media, even as recently as today, it still comes back to those two same damn debates. And look, you can probably tell by the tone of my voice where I sit in those debates, but it's not my purpose in that article to try and engage with the debate so much as to historicize them and show that we've been having the same debate for the last 40 plus years. Of course, your, your paper, you know, came about through oral history interviews and also through meticulous research about media reports. It also explored teammates. What did you discover in relation to teammates and I guess competitors as well? Yeah, look, this is really interesting. So what inspired this paper was actually three of the, the lovely athletes um, I interviewed um, who are in the paper. So that's Ricky Coughlin and Kirsty Miller and Caroline Late. I know you've had Caroline and Kirsty on your show before. Um, is, is Actually, I wound up just coincidentally emailing the three of them like three days in a row. Like, not planned to, like, I was just interviewing multiple people for my project and I interviewed these three and I'm like, okay, there is clearly something to say about sport. Um, and once Thing that came across from all three of them, and look, there are variations on this that we can, that I'm sure Caroline and Kirsty have spoken about probably in far more detail on your show, was they all, for the most part, at least initially, were accepted. They were accepted by their teammates. They were also accepted by competitors. And Mayanna Bagger, who's another uh, former golfer who I interviewed for this, was very clear on the same thing. They didn't have these these fights that we see in the media and these arguments about fair play discourse and these arguments about the whether or not they were really women. Their teammates accepted them. That was it. The end. With Ricky, same thing. Ricky talked about once she was outed and people knew that she was transgender, they were like, well, you're Ricky, you know, we know you. You, you, you run with us. I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing what she said. But now look, with Caroline and Kirstie, it wasn't quite the same. At first, they were accepted, but then they did come across quite a bit of transphobia um, once they were outed. So, I, I mean, that's where there is complexity and there's nuance in this. But, but there is this important point that all, often the people who were shouting the loudest, the commentators, the, the politicians, the right-wing media – they're not the ones actually on the ground. On the ground, it, the people were often accepted by their peers. And I guess you know some sports were better than others as well. Uh, what can you tell us about the good sports and the bad sports, if you like? Look, that's a really tough one to say um, because I can, first off, I mean, I wasn't targeting any particular sports per se in this project. It had to do with, you know, it, as a cisgender male, when I'm doing this research, it's very much about centering the voices of the people who who I interview and letting them show. And it just so happened that the sports people who I interviewed happened to be people who had participated in athletics, golf, um, rugby, both union and league. And, and AFL. And so, look, it, it's hard to generalize, except I would say that there did seem to be more difficulties for people in those sports that traditionally are associated with masculinity. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why Caroline and Kirsty came across more problems, uh, more, more transphobia, more challenges, is they were participating in women's sports, so in Caroline's case, women's rugby, and in Kirsty's case, AFL women's. But these are sports that we know that traditionally have been associated with masculinity, so they copped, I think, a bit more flack of this idea that, oh, you're actually a bloke and, and blah, 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 whereas in golf and athletics, where there's a much longer tradition or of of much more visibility and participation of women, I think there was a bit more leeway, perhaps, in, in those areas of not just seeing them as, as men participating, trying to take over the sport or, or gain an unfair advantage. But, but, I, but I make these 
hypotheses with that sort of caveat, like I said, this is just going off for particular people whom I've interviewed. I mean, I imagine there are plenty of other players in athletics or golf who may have had not so good a time, and there might be more in, in AFL and rugby who may have had a better time. But based on the what I have to go off and the people I've met, that that's what I would say. You mentioned tennis before, Noah, and uh, Margaret Court. She gets a lot of media publicity, but how much real influence has she had on policy when it comes to trans women in tennis? I don't think she's had much. Um, To be honest, I feel kind of bad now that I even brought her up because I think we give that woman too much oxygen. Um, But look, it was, was, I suppose the reason it makes more sense in this context was it was 1976. She was still active. She was one of the most high-profile Australian women tennis players at the time. So I suppose in that sense, it kind of made sense to ask for her comment. But in terms of today, you know, you know, I think I think we, we, as I said, I think giving too much oxygen to her views. Absolutely. Now, look, just looking comparatively, of course, uh, Australian-based sports have made leaps and bounds of progress in relation to policy around trans people in sport. Uh, how do we compare to other countries, do you think? And did people that you interviewed talk about, about the here and now? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, look, I can't confidently answer that because I haven't really looked at other countries in my research. And in terms of the here and now, I do try to bring my research into the present. And in that sense, I think what we're seeing now, and, and this is a bit global, I suppose, is, is there is more push for trans inclusion in sport. I think last year, it was in October, um, you know, while we were sort of at the tail end of our awful lockdown in Melbourne, but there was a lot of, um, there, was, there was a group of, I think it was eight, it might have been more, of the profession, of the the peak bodies in Australia all had sort of a joint release, press release where they came out with trans inclusion policies. Um, not every sport had agreed to this, and there have been quite a few trans people who said they don't think those policies have been inclusive enough or that they haven't been necessarily applied equitably. But certainly in Australia, I think things have been progressing unevenly, perhaps, we could say, but in general, more towards inclusion. Uh, Broadly speaking, the UK tends to, because there's a lot more turf influence there, tends to be a bit more behind. Um, but I couldn't really speak about other jurisdictions because I don't know enough about them. Noah, you do groundbreaking research on, on trans people. What's the journey been personally like for you? I mean, you do so many oral history interviews, you speak to so many people, uh, and you are a trailblazer with your research. I mean, it must have a huge impact. Can you share that with us? Oh, that's very generous of you. And and I wouldn't say on trans people, I'd say with. um, Absolutely. And and so, um, look, I've learned a lot. As I said, I'm a cis man, cis white man. Not going to, you know, I I know that comes with lots and lots of privileges, but, like, I've been blown away by the amazing people I've met. I've interviewed about 70-plus people at the moment, and the project is still ongoing. But I suppose, you know, I, I... I would have never before this seen myself writing an article about sport. I mean, I, I've recently taken up ice hockey and I'm loving that, but I'm not necessarily a sports person and sport history isn't my field. But one thing that really came out of just looking at sport as one example, trans people in Australia and in the world historically have been involved in every part of life. 
you know, my previous research was on the military, and that's what got me into this was meeting trans people in the military. And now I've been able to talk about them in sport and, you know, trans people in unions, trans people in theater, you know, every they're part of society, a part of life. They're everyday people we know and meet on the street. And so it's just been amazing that people have been so generous to share their stories with me. And I try my best to do justice to affirming their voices in whatever I write to get that history out there so people can learn that, that they've always been here and part of every every part of life, always. What's up next? I mean, you've done the military, you're exploring sport. What other, what other areas are we going to see you what focus I'm on? What I'm actually working on right now, and it is still part of this project, is a history of uh, trans healthcare in Australia, um, which is something that I'm putting a report together for um, OzPath, the Australian Professional Association for Transgender Health. And it's been really, really interesting because, uh, you know, we, we've obviously, broadly speaking, we've gone from a very gatekeeper, psychiatrist controlling things model towards a more affirming model of informed consent. But there's a lot in that journey from the first um, cases of trans people is, well, in the mid-1800s, to be honest, um, through till now, but especially in the post-Second World War and the, the way that healthcare providers have, and specialists and doctors have worked with trans people has changed a lot. So that's sort of uh, what I'm working on right now is the, the healthcare system and, and healthcare for trans people, that history. And of course, Australia has a proud history of community health, especially in the LGBTIQ area, especially, you know, since um, HIV AIDS began. Um, It'll be fascinating to hear your insights in that area. Anything you can share now? Yeah, well, one thing that's interesting is is, um, a lot of the doctors who were sort of not all, no, yeah, quite a few, especially in the 90s, a lot of the GPs who started, well, I say a lot of, but we are talking a really small number here, but the GPs who started breaking away from the gatekeeper model and started to be more affirming of trans people in an informed consent model, often but not always, were gay or bisexual doctors. And I think part of that was, as some of them have even said in interviews, is the legacy of gay men having been a sort of pathologized group that psychiatrists and others were defining until the 1970s. And so you sort of see by the 90s, the the GPs who are the first who tend to break away from that tended to be gay or bisexual men, uh, and women as well, I should say, including straight women. So there's some insight in that, absolutely, what you just said. Noah Reisman, always great to talk with you on 3CR. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Dr. Noah Reisman, there you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. It is Radiothon. Text us a donation, 0488-809-855-0488-809-855 or old school, 94198377. 94198377. All righty, you are on In Your Face on 3CR. And uh, here's PJ Harvey.
good fortune, we do have some donations. Radical Women have donated $20. Juliet's donated $20. Bruce Francis has donated $25. And Sally Ann has donated $10. Thank you all so much. Uh, you can make a donation by texting us 0488 809-855 or 94198377 or even via the net, of course, at 3cr.org.au. That text number again, 0488-809-855. Alrighty, Alistair Laurie is up real soon, but in the meantime, we're going to hear from UMI and their track, Rumble. You am I there with Rumble, 94198377. If you'd like to make a donation for the 3CR Radiothon for In Your Face, we do have some more donations. Jody Moore, $50. Love you, Jody. Thank you so much. Uh, Andrew Harvey, $70. That's just fantastic. Thank you so much, Andrew. And Helen, $40. That's just so wonderful. Thank you all so, so much for your donations. If you would like to text us a donation, you can do it at 0488 
809-855-0488-809-855. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. And we're joined by LGBTIQ community policy expert, Alastair Laurie. Alastair, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thanks very much for having me. It's so great to chat with you. Always wonderful, Alistair, to have you on board. It's such a busy time in politics and in policy. Uh, let's start with the Australian Senate this week and One Nation. What shenanigans did they get up to? <laughs> okay. Uh, so on Tuesday, the Senate voted on a motion from One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts, which targeted support and affirmation for trans children and young people. So let's start with the good news. First, this type of motion is not legally binding, so even if it passed, it would not have restricted the ability of trans kids to access life-saving, evidence-based healthcare. Second, it wasn't passed, so Labor, the Greens, Jackie Lambie, and in fact a small number of government senators voted to reject it. Now that's out of the way, I'm afraid the bad news is in fact very bad. So we had 21 government senators, or the majority of government members in that House, voted in support of One Nation's anti-trans motion. That includes the Attorney-General, Michaelia Cash, as well as the Assistant Minister to the Attorney-General and Assistant Minister for Women, Amanda Stoker. 21 is is a disturbing number of government senators willing to embrace evidence-free, nonsensical arguments and turf-like BS. It's also a terrible precedent and warning sign, indicating trans rights may be wound back in the future. It's especially worrying when there's already a Pauline Hanson One Nation bill targeting trans-inclusive school education, which is currently being considered by a Senate committee, and in the context of her counterpart, Mark Latham's anti-trans kids bill in New South Wales. It's also a really worrying sign, isn't it, for the looming religious discrimination bill's return, especially when you've got the Minister for Women and the Attorney-General supporting it. But there is some good news as well, isn't there, that, you know, Liberal senators like Jane Hume, Andrew Bragg and Maurice Payne opposed it. Um, Does that show that there's clearly some divisions that could perhaps, you know, be transposed over to the religious discrimination bill when the government introduces it again? an encouraging sign that they were willing to break with their counterparts on on this kind of motion. But as I said, that's a non-binding motion. When it comes to the Religious Discrimination Bill, it's far more likely that they will be bound to support it, um, to support the government's position. So it'll be more difficult for uh, both senators to oppose the Religious Discrimination Bill, which could take away rights from the same group. Yes, the government seems to have, like, you know, military precision, doesn't it, when it comes to organising their members, whipping them into line on on legislation they really want to get through. And it does seem that if they do bring that bill back, that it will certainly be the case in relation to it. Um, There's been a lot of talk about coming back soon. What do we know about its return? So we've always been working on the assumption that it would come back at some point this year. And uh, in the second half of this week, there were media reports that the Attorney-General, the same one that voted against the rights of trans kids, will be bringing back the Religious Discrimination Bill before the end of 2021. So we've already seen two exposure drafts released previously by the old Attorney-General, Christian Porter, um, but that was delayed because of coronavirus. Those bills had a large number of flaws um, and would increase discrimination against a wide range of groups, including women, LGBTIQ people, people with disability, and even people with minority faith. The the bad side is that the media reports this week indicate that even those excessive and extreme special privileges have not been enough to satisfy religious fundamentalists who are pushing for the final bill to go even further. So it might include overriding 
And I guess, you know, with the new Attorney General, Michaela Cash, I guess she's kind of dashed hopes of having perhaps, you know, a more progressive Attorney General on, on social justice issues. I mean, if anything, she's more hardline than Christian Porter, wouldn't you say? I don't know whether we can say that or not. I, we can say that the vote on uh, Tuesday against trans uh, affirmation and support was a bad start. Um, but I, I would hope that the new Attorney-General will listen to um, not just the religious fundamentalists pushing for this legislation, but also the wide range of groups who are opposed to it. So groups representing women, groups representing LGBTIQ people, uh, the legal sector, human rights experts. Uh, there are even even business um, talking about the impacts of this law. There are a wide range of groups who have come out against the first and second exposure drafts and will come out against any final bill that causes more discrimination rather than less. One Nation seems to be really, you know, coming down hard on the trans community, and you mentioned Mark Latham before. Uh, you must be dreadfully disappointed that the New South Wales government, that the Premier, uh, hasn't actually, you know, like stopped his his bills in, in New South Wales, which are doing so much damage, i.e. in relation to religious freedom, but also the Education Parental Rights Bill. Uh, sure, I guess those, those are two slightly different situations. So in terms of the Religious Freedom Bill, uh, we've seen a government committee recommend um, that the government itself, uh, sorry, a, a parliamentary committee recommends that the government itself prepare a religious discrimination bill before the end of 2021. The government has until the end of September to decide what to do with that recommendation. Um, and even if it does introduce a religious discrimination bill to decide whether it's a genuine religious discrimination bill to protect people of faith against religious discrimination or whether it's an extreme religious freedom bill to allow discrimination in the name of faith. And you know, one of those might be uh, an acceptable thing and the other other could be um, what would be something that would be strongly opposed and we don't know um, what the government's going to do yet. But you're right, in terms of the other Latham bill, uh, the education legislation uh, parental rights bill or its more accurate title, the anti-trans kids bill, it's extremely disappointing that neither the government nor the opposition have come out against it, even though it's been uh, subject to public debate for more, almost 12 months. Um, it seems like in New South Wales, you'd have more luck waiting for Godot than waiting for leadership on trans issues from the Liberal, National and Labor parties. What can you tell us about Labor's new leader in New South Wales when it comes to LGBTIQ community policy? Do you have some hope that he will be more outspoken uh, in favour of the community's rights than what Jodie Mackay was, especially in relation to Latham's trans bill, which she seems to be, you know, she was pretty silent on, wasn't she? She didn't really say anything at all. Uh, You're right. The the old opposition leader, the um, former opposition leader, Jodie Mackay, uh, didn't take a position on the bill, and that was incredibly disappointing. Uh, this is a chance for the new opposition leader, Chris Minns, to show that he will actually be a leader, to show that he's prepared to stand up against um, ill-informed, ignorant and exclusionary uh, legislative attacks from uh, a fringe extremist party in the upper house. Um, and if he doesn't, then he's in effect condoning those same atta- attacks on trans kids. So... It's both an opportunity for the new opposition leader to show leadership, uh, and it's a test. And I imagine activists are already calling on him to show that leadership. Uh, when do you think he might do that? I mean, surely, you know, it needs to be pretty soon, doesn't it? You would hope so. 
Um, so at the moment, that bill is also being considered by a committee, uh, except in that case, the chair of the committee is Mark Layton himself. And surprise, surprise, that committee inquiry is about as unbalanced and transphobic as the bill itself. Um, so they had hearings in April and only one out of the 42 witnesses um, was a trans or gender diverse person. Um, trans groups like the Gender Centre did not appear, even though it's trans people who stand the most to lose under that legislation. And the only religious organisations invited to appear were groups that opposed the bill. Um, several faith bodies who support trans kids and oppose this bill were excluded. Um, so it could be that the major parties are waiting for that committee to process to run its course. But that committee process uh, is, I would say, biased uh, and hasn't been accepting evidence from, from critics. So I, I think um, there is absolutely no reason, given how extreme the legislation is, um, for both the government and the, there's no reason why both the government and the opposition can't come out immediately uh, and say this legislation is extreme, it's not acceptable in New South Wales in 2021 and we will not support it. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, Mark Latham's chairing that committee. You'd think that there would have been more public outcry beyond the LGBTIQ community about that, you know, glaring conflict of interest. And you would have thought that that would have put the the spotlight on the Premier to actually make some sort of comment about that bill. It's, it begs belief, doesn't it? Uh, it, it does. I mean, I, I, as you know, I've written about uh, this legislation several times in the last 12 months. And... Uh, each time you, you look at the bill's provisions, you realise just how extreme it is to, to not just try to raise trans and non-binary students from every classroom and schoolyard across the state, but it also would reinsert a Section 28 style uh, from the UK prohibition on anything, uh, on saying anything positive about homosexuality. Uh, it includes uh, a offensive and um, stigmatising definition of intersex. Uh, it, it even limits what school counsellors can, can say and, and referrals they can make to trans and gender diverse kid, kids. Like, this is uh, absolutely extreme. It should have taken a day. It could have even taken an hour to say that they wouldn't support it. I can't believe that it's taken almost a year and we're still no closer to hearing from the major parties. Of course, you mentioned the new opposition leader in New South Wales, Chris Minns, and of course, Latham's education bill is very regressive on industrial relations. It would make it impossible for trans and gender diverse teachers to teach in the New South Wales education system. You'd think that if he wanted to show his credentials on workers' rights, that he would he would take that angle at least. Uh, you would hope so. Um, education unions have been pointing out the flaws of it. Um, the consequences for a teacher expressing um, support for a trans student are more severe than for nearly any other kind of possible misconduct by a teacher. So imagine losing your job because you affirmed a student's pronouns or you stopped transphobic bullying against them or, or you told a class that trans people are real and trans women are women and trans men are men. You could lose your job for that under this bill, absolutely from a workplace uh, rights perspective, uh, the legislation is terrible too. Alastair Laurie, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thank you so much for chatting with me today.
Alastair Laurie there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. It is Radiothon. Text us a donation, 0488-809-855, or give us a call, 94198377. We've had another donation. Brian Newman has donated $100. Brian, thank you so much for that. We really, really, really cherish that. That's fantastic. Uh, we've got to raise 800 bucks. so uh, give us a call, 94198377. Or go online, 3cr.org.au, or yeah, text us a donation, 0488-809-855. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, and uh, here's Aretha Franklin.
Aretha Franklin, there you are, and in your face on 3CR with James is Radiothon. You can make a donation at 3cr.org.au. You can text us on 0488809855 or phone us old school 94198377. We do have Nevna Sporovska from the Victorian Pride Lobby on the line. Nevna, welcome back to the show. James, an absolute pleasure to be here, and I will say that I just renewed my membership as well and encourage anyone who hasn't done it, for whatever reason, uh, you might have been a little bit like me and just slightly forgetful. Uh, Now is the perfect time to celebrate the incredible station that is 3CR. Absolutely. And uh, MV's made a $15 donation. Leanne, $25. Love you, Leanne. And uh, Marcus has also made a donation, $20, uh, 94198377. We are, of course, talking to Nevena, Nevena Sporovska from the Victorian Pride Lobby, who does awesome work for our community. I can't keep up, Nevena, with all the campaigns you're working on. Uh, what, what are you working on at the moment? What's the big focus? At the moment, one of our big focuses is the rollout of our Pride and Power Victorian LGBTIQA plus experiences with essential services and banks. So what we did recently was an online survey of our community in Victoria just to get a pulse sense about their experiences with electricity, gas, water supplies and banks. Sure, it might sound riveting, but there was just a huge gap in this and so limited research done and we really wanted to recognise the unique experiences and also the vulnerabilities that LGBTIQA plus consumers were having with essential services and banks Uh, and perhaps not surprisingly some of the more concerning uh, treatment that we did hear about was with banks so that's where we're going to be doing a fair bit of work in the future. We have recently been in talks with NAB about some really interesting work they're doing about around trans and gender diverse customers. So very much look forward to sharing some updates on that in the future. And of course, the banks have an appalling record when it comes to sex workers and many sex workers, of course, are queer. Uh, So the banks really need to lift their game for that part of the community. Exactly right. So this is something that we're working with, with sex group uh, organisations as well as advocates to make sure that that poor treatment and discrimination doesn't happen on a customer level. But also more broadly, one of the things that our report picks up was a review of the material and the depictions of people in banks. When you go on website, it's like a heteronormative paraphernalia everywhere. It's very difficult to see depictions of LGBTIQ people, let alone people living at intersections of our community. So this is something that we're really passionate about uh, and making sure that the everyday experience of people isn't marred by ignorance and discrimination. You've been doing heaps of work with local government uh, and inclusion. Uh, Give us a recap about where that's at. So our Rainbow Local Government campaign, which we launched last year, has been ongoing and it just seems to be win after win. I'm not blowing smoke up. Uh, the lobby's chimney, so to speak. But we've just had some really good success recently, and that's included the city of Maribyrnong setting up its first LGBTIQA plus community reference group. We've also had a win uh, with councils in the Frankston draft, you know, putting together an LGBTIQ action plan and advisory group. 
So it's not like this is Melbourne-centric. This is happening across all of Victoria, and we're working with regional and rural councils to make sure that we can support them with this implementation, especially when there's um, shorter resources than what would be in the inner city. I'm glad you mentioned Maribyrnong. A huge shout-out to their Queer Residents Association, which was recently formed, uh, with Rick Spencer uh, and a whole heap of people from the community out there. It's great they've had a win with uh, Maribyrnong Council. And it's so important to have things like an advisory committee and an action plan because not only does it keep the council accountable, but it keeps councillors accountable. So when you have people there to help with the work, that have their ear to the ground and can really feed up the issues of the area. We're not just relying on something bad to happen and then for reactionary action to be taken. This is all about being inclusive, it's about being proactive and it's about making sure that there is equality in those local government areas. And Maribyrnong is just such an incredibly rich, diverse and amazing part of our state and I'm just so glad to see that that got up. A big focus for the lobby, of course, is law reform. We do have a very progressive government when it comes to LGBTIQ policy and law reform here in Victoria. What are your sources telling you about what's next on their law reform agenda for our community? The sources are telling us that there is a lot of focus on the all-of-government strategy. So this is something that we uh, put out recently when Acting Commissioner Todd Fernando was announced. We're really interested in this strategy being successful and what successful looks like is that the strategy is specific, that it's measurable, that it's properly resourced and that it's time-bound. I think we've all been around long enough to know that most strategies are stock images, that um, they're platitudes and words and this has just been an incredibly in-depth piece of work and for it to be successful and to implement some of those changes that we want to see, it needs to have those measures attached to it. You do so much work, Nevin. What's on your policy wish list? What's at the top of it? Like, what would you love to see this government do for our community? Oh, look, rainbows and equality for all. But if we were getting a little bit more specific, we would love to see some action uh, and we understand that there will be Uh, some work done in the intersex space. So we're very much looking forward to uh, groups like Intersex Human Rights Australia leading the way and consultation being undertaken to make sure that medically unnecessary uh, procedures aren't being performed on unconsenting children. So that would be really positive change and I think a great legacy for this government. The lobby really is very, very politically active. Um, You've got a great board. Um, You're, of course, on the board. How much work do you have to put in with networking and uh, lobbying on policy? Like, it just must consume a huge part of your life. Well, don't tell my boss, but a a fair bit. It is obviously an incredible passion project for everyone that's involved, and that's the 10 incredible volunteers that put in hours and hours of their time writing submissions, doing researches, uh, sorry, doing research, connecting with community, speaking to decision makers, putting these campaigns together. But this is, you know, we are one group and we continue the legacy of incredible volunteer work that is underscored and brought together um, 
our community for decades on end. So that's what makes me so proud to be part of the lobby. We're unfunded. We operate. We don't even have a shoestring. There is no shoestring. We run purely on passion and power um, and the fact that the work needs to be done and we put our hands up to do it. And it's a really young group of activists, isn't it, that's on the leadership team of the of the lobby, and it's really quite heartening to see the next generation of activists really kicking goals. Activists, reformers, advocates, whatever they want to call themselves, I think they're all-round legends. And we are quite a young group spanning uh, across our 20s and 40s Within the committee, and we have a pool of volunteers that also assist us in the work that we do. And like you said, this is the pipeline of the next community leaders, the people who are going to be at the front of the rally, the people who are going to be, you know, leading the charge and letting us know what the next, uh, you know, batch of issues are going to be. Because you know, as we continue on in life, we can sometimes get a little bit disconnected to what's happening. Uh, behind us, so it you know it keeps us it keeps us informed to to be connected to the Zoomer generation. Absolutely, well the lobby is doing a superb job. Nevna Sparovska, thanks so much for chatting with me today on Three CR. And James, thank you so much for your work and everything that you do in the community. You're an absolute star and legend, and we're very lucky to have you. Oh, thank you so much, Nevna. I really appreciate. It. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers. Talk to you soon. The wonderful Nevna Sparovska there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. That number to text a donation for our Radiothon, 0488-809-855-09419-8377. Here's Milk. My birthday candle's broken, so there goes my surprise. If I cross my heart and make a wish, Think that I'll be satisfied There's wildlife in the garden And the old man in your eyes It's beaming like a Green Day song Before the envy rides along The keepsakes and a kiss between the eyes Pick up your dusty golden feet And I'll make you on marching is not sure who to fight his mother's claims or daisy chains or drowning in the night so don't picnic by the river there's no laughing afternoons if you tiptoe around don't make a sound the danger man won't bother you with a ribbons and a kick around the town your dusty golden feet I'll meet you under the wishing tree I'll bring the net, we'll catch a lovely day For stealthy weeping, crying Hope you'll stop before you're broken Nursery's out of bounds Baby wing 
things and sleeping things rest lightly on the ground. The market isn't open. There's no oranges today. Just some blistered skin and an anxious throat and a feeling that won't go away. Go. from their album Golden Ring Life. So, so proud of 3CR. Chet does an amazing job and so proud of all our listeners and supporters for making their donations. We've had some more. Um, really touched. Neil Farrow, $100. Thank you so much, Neil. And uh, $25 from the awesome Cam Smith, who... Uh, with Slack Bastard does a show called uh, Yena Passaran here on 3CR, uh, 4.30 on Thursdays, looking at uh, the far right and fascism. Uh, really, really vital work. Cam, I'm really, really touched. Thank you so much for your $25 donation. Thank you to those people who have donated. It's so wonderful. If you haven't made a donation, if you feel like it, you still can. You can go to 3cr.org.au and make a donation to our wonderful radio station. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave, taking us out is the do and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.